Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I really just felt someone was going to die. Everything that I did, you can't fix it. You just have to change it. The drug use while pregnant, um, sending my daughter to her father's, just a lot of emotional stuff. (laughs) Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Today on the podcast, the story behind the story, If I Die Young. Lane and I thought it might be good to take a deep dive occasionally into a particular story to discuss how she got the story and the challenges along the way. So today, we're focusing on a three-part series published in 2011. It was about a woman named Stacy Nicholson and her drug addiction. If you'd like to read the full series, we'll post the stories again on our website along with this podcast. So this this is uh, you came. To, this isn't how you typically come to an idea. So talk about how this one came to be and how you guys jumped into it. Yeah, usually I hear a story or I meet a person or I think about you know I find a frame for something and, and I pitch a story. Um, this story came about meeting with my editor then Mike Wilson and talking, kind of brainstorming about. What are the biggest topics of the year that are going to be facing Tampa Bay? Um, so that would have been in 2011. Um, we came up with three or four things that had been in the paper a lot but hadn't had a big deep dive or a context. Um, and one of them, it was that this seems so long ago now to be talking about this, but the opioid crisis was really hitting Florida. Oh, you guys did it on the early side, We right? were on the beginning of this, and we'd had a, there were a bunch of stories, and our paper had done about um, pill mills and about uh shady doctors and about police trying to bust the the users and the doctors and uh, what legislation should be done, what should the attorney general do and all this stuff. And, And I was like, well, what about the people who are addicted? You know, and so we kind of, we did this like, Put up the topic and then spin around it, and what part of it hadn't been covered, and it was putting a face on the addicts, the people who become addicted to opioids. Um, and so we started. Po- I started poking around a little bit more to say, you know, what happens when you get arrested um, for an opioid addiction? And one thing I found out pretty early was that um, Pinellas County had the only all-female drug court in the country, and this judge, Judge Farnell, had started this drug court because there were so many. Um, especially young women coming through there who had lost their jobs, lost their cars, lost their kids, lost everything to this opioid addiction, and they were being basically tossed in jail to serve out their time. And she wanted to get them help. She wanted to get them, you know, uh, counseling, and she wanted to help them get their lives back on track and their kids back in their custody. So she started this program where um, you come into her court, and if you agree to be part of Judge Farnell's drug court, then she calls you out every, it was every Tuesday from like nine to noon or eight to noon. 
All the women would come in, and she'd ask them, did you look for a job? Did you get your GED? Have you read any books this week? Have you gone to the gym and exercised? And she would give them extra points for running a marathon or reading a book or passing a class at the community college. And they could use all of that um, forward momentum to work off their time and their conviction. And if they finished drug court, they would get their record wiped clean. So we wanted to find a woman in the throes of the addiction trying to get her life back on track. So we met with the judge first, and she was like, oh, yeah, come to drug court anytime you want, any Tuesday. So the photographer and I started going, I think maybe in February of that year, and we went every single Tuesday to drug court and sat there and listened to these women being berated by the judge, being praised by the judge, crying to the judge, passing out in front of the judge, like just hung out in court for four hours every Tuesday. And um, we probably talked to 100 women. Um, during the first three months, we, I would chase them out of court. You know, after they did their thing, I would chase them out of court and be like, hey, from the Timothy Times, we want to do this story. And, and we were looking for a woman who'd be willing to let us in, um, but also somebody who had a support system. So did they have a husband or a sister or a best friend or a mom or somebody that could help navigate that world or be sort of a, um, an anchor for that person, even if they were falling falling out of control or spiraling out of control. And also it was somebody who had something at stake as they were rooting for that person, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, was it hard to get motivated for this story because it was kind of like you picked an issue rather than a person at first? It was hard to find a person. That was the problem. I mean, I knew I the way I wanted to The issue the story, interested you? I yeah, mean, like the that. issue interested me, and the judge was really interesting to me. And at first I thought about doing just the judge, and she became a sidebar. Um, but... You know, I I felt like we'd written so many stories about opioid addiction and not one of them had talked about what it was like to be addicted to opium or how you kick that. Um, and so we interviewed 100 women, um, which was exhausting and awful. And I felt very intrusive to a lot of their lives, you know. we And ultimately found three who were willing to let us participate and sort of – we. That was one of the first stories I've ever said, like, I want to follow you for a few months. I want to, I don't know how long I want to follow you, but I want to follow you as long as you're in drug court. So it's not going to be just a drop in one time. I, I want to be there when you're in jail. I want to be there when you're at your halfway house. I want to be there when you go visit your kid at DCF. You know, so I kind of laid it out from the beginning. So you had these three women. And so walk, walk us through that. So you went, you stayed with, you tried to follow their cases for... Almost a year. Almost a year, right. And then at the end... You ended up writing only about one woman. So what happened yeah. there? So I guess we picked our three women by about the end of March or early April, and the story came out in December. Um, so we probably followed them for at least six or seven months. Stacy and her mom from the beginning were the ones that seemed most willing. Stacy seemed the most um, motivated of anybody. She was older than the other two girls. Stacy was, I forgot how old she was. She was in her mid-20s, I think, and had two children. And her mother was taking care of the, the younger one. So the mother had a lot. The mother was a right. big help to us um, in terms of keeping us on track when Stacy relapsed and got arrested again. And um, very early in our reporting, her cousin, who she'd lived with, who she'd been had been her dealer pretty much, died in the hospital. And her mother had petitioned the judge to let her out of jail to come watch this cousin die, like as a cautionary tale. So we had this very dramatic scene near the beginning of the reporting. Uh, the other two women, one of them was very young. I think she was... Uh, Tori was 19, maybe she was 20. Her mother had also been in drug court, and her mother had died of an overdose. So every time Tori came to drug court, she carried her mother's ashes with her in this little jar that she brought to drug court with her every single time. And she'd be like, oh, my mom's here with me. And she had a two-year-old that was 
completely being ignored and raised by whatever neighbor's house she wandered into that night. Um, and so she was our second character. Uh, she ended up busting probation in the middle of the reporting. She called us. I mean, these people would call us all the time, which was amazing. She called us and she said, I'm taking a train to North Carolina. I'm busting out of here. And we were like, holy cow, like you, you got all these charges over your head. You got a two-year-old. So we met her at the train station. She had her two-year-old by one hand and she had their mother's ashes in the other hand and she gets on the Amtrak in the pouring rainstorm and left for North Carolina. So we ended up going to visit her up there and like following that piece of it. But my editor was kind of like, yeah, we don't want to let people know that we know where this fugitive is. And <laughs> like, and Jane is now an accessory. <laughs> and she basically like busted her chance for drug court. So in terms of so finishing she's program, not a character. She's out of there. Um, the other girl we followed was Angel. And Angel had like the saddest story I ever, ever heard. She, in fact, the, when we interviewed her in jail the first time, the guard started crying during the interview. And I was like, oh, man, she, her boyfriend had gotten her into opioids. And when she tried to break up with him when she was like 15, he shot his head off in front of her and said, this is your fault. So that was the beginning of her throes in this addiction and, and drug addled world. Um, and she tried for a while, and then she just kept falling back, overdosing again and again, and her mother was at her wit's end. And <laughs> the last courtroom scene, I think we followed her up through, like, Halloween or maybe early November, and she ended up getting pregnant while she was on all these opioids. And then the deputy said, oh, you violated your probation, you're pregnant, and you've got opioids in your system, we're sending you back to jail. So in the middle of the courtroom, she attacks this bailiff and punches him in the head. And they end up having like this throwdown in the middle of drug court and carrying her off, kicking and screaming. And we were like, oh, I don't think that was going to have a happy ending. So instead of trying to follow all three of these women, he made the very difficult and painful decision, which I think was right in the end of like, let's just put all our eggs in Stacey's basket because she's the only one who's still got hope of coming out of this program. Did you worry that you're talking about characters that like, yeah, that could like, you know, decide on any on a whim that they didn't want to participate in this story, and that you know oh, all yeah. of this would be wasted effort. Well, there were these moments when uh, John Pendergraf was the photographer with, with me, and he was wonderful. And uh, we spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time hanging out at these drug houses, watching people do drugs, and you know, telling them, "Don't take that picture, don't write that down," and like letting us in, but kind of controlling what it was and there were so many times that they'd be like we'll be right back and then they would leave to go get more drugs or do whatever they were doing and we're sitting in these empty drug houses by ourselves and it's three in the morning it's four in the morning finally John was like I need a cigarette and I was like I haven't had a cigarette since college we ended up smoking cigarettes while we reported this story because it was like sitting around with all these people watching wee hours of the morning go by while they nod off and shoot up and stuff was was a lot of time to kill and a lot of like being blown off again and again and again and again in these worlds. Read the beginning of the series, how how it starts, and um, so this is the introduction to Stacy Nicholson. Okay, and the story is called "If I Die Young." When her mom came to pick her up for drug court that morning, Stacy Nicholson was still high. She staggered to the door, fumbled with the bungee cord that kept it closed, blinked back the sunlight. "You ready?" asked her mom. Stacy and two of her cousins had been holed up for months in this rundown house, shooting crushed-up pain pills. Used syringes littered an end table. Stacy's mom had kept telling her, someone in this house is going to die. Stacy, then 28, knew she was right. Days before, she had told her mom she was tired of stealing and doctor shopping to get pills. She was in trouble for skipping her last court date, so today she planned to turn herself in. 
Okay, Stacy said. Let's go. She twisted her long, honey-colored hair into a knot, zipped her sweatshirt. Underneath, she was wearing two bras, a tank top, two white T-shirts, and three pairs of panties. She wanted to be sure she would have a change of underwear in jail. Did you have to work hard on mom? Was she she, no. she a willing participant? Mom was the greatest part of that story. Mom thought that it was it was going to be a. I guess she thought that it might help other people. Mom thought that it would help Stacy. She oh, okay. she thought that if we were monitoring her and following her extra progress, pressure. there would be more pressure on Stacy to like stay in the program. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was curious. So in the story, you talk about why you ended up or like how you ended up with Stacy as your character, but and you put that in the story. I was curious why you guys did that. Why did you tell the reader, okay, we picked this girl, and here's why? I just think because of the volume of people we talked to and the variety of lives we saw caught up in this epidemic that it was important to say, here's why we're going to train the camera really tight on this one woman for a year, mm-hmm. that she's just one of a, you know thousands of faces of people um, in this world, but... We picked her. I thought there's a graph in this story at the close to the beginning, which is sort of, um, you know, Lane to Gregory, a Lane to Gregory graph. And it's uh, the tension that sets up the whole, that drives the whole story. And I, and I, and I think it's brilliant. And it, I think it's what you do really, really well. And I think what a lot of reporters are struggling to kind of grasp. And, and what you do in this graph is you sum up the battle for Stacy, and you say, Stacy wanted what a lot of addicts want, to get clean, but also to get high. She wanted to have her kids back, but also to have no responsibility. She wanted to feel better and to feel nothing. And I think the, you know, the, the spareness and the simplicity, but yet the whole range of emotion that you encapsulate in that one graph, I mean, like, I'm, like, I'm, I'm in awe, really, when I read that graph, because I think... What did it take you to boil it all down to its essence and what, you know, to get to that? How'd you do that? How do you, how do you, how do you, I, I know you spend a lot of time with her. I know you walk away thinking about, you come away with a really good sense of who she is. But I think what you do in that graph for the reader is like you, you say, look, but here's the human condition, right? It's just always a battle between these things that are pulling you in different directions. And and Stacy was very generous with her thoughts and feelings. She was very, very open and honest about what she was going through. And I think that graph came about between the juxtaposition of talking to her mother about what she thought Stacy wanted or what Stacy told her mother she wanted versus talking to Stacy, who was kind of like, yeah, but. You know, she kind of had the yeah, buts going where mom was like, oh, she really wants to get clean. She really wants her kids back. She really wants this life that she was on the path of. And Stacy's like, yeah, I do, but. You know, and uh, and so you I, were I think, seeing those contradictions. Yeah, and I think that that was what was playing through my head. I think I wrote that paragraph on the way home one night from an interview because I don't usually do that. <laughs> but I the the echo of uh, mom's perspective versus Stacy's perspective, and she was twenty eight. She was a great age because the other girls were a lot younger. You know, um, mm-hmm. she had more life experience. She had more at stake with her own kids. You know, um, 
the two-year-old didn't really know what was going on, but she had a 12 or 13-year-old daughter who also knew what was going on and was sort of, come on, mom, get it together, you know. And so I think that was like, the, my best writing comes when I feel like I'm inside the person's head. Right. And and that was one of those moments I felt like, okay, I kind of get this. And so crucial to a really good story, I think, is that that, that moment where you kind of take a 3,000-foot view, you pull away from this, okay, I'm in this character, and I'm showing you this woman and what her dilemma is, and then I'm going to, but I'm going to really, ah, you, it's you telling me, it's you telling me what her dilemma is and why it's so difficult, because she does want these things, but these other things are just pulling at her, too, so. And I think... Trying to put it in perspective, too, if it's not just opioids. I mean, whether you want to go get drunk one night and right. leave your kids with your mom or you want to go, you know, go run a marathon so you have five hours in your own head instead of responsibility. You know, I think whatever your mini addiction is can be played into that uh, right. larger context. Right. The universe. I mean, yeah, the universal struggle, whatever whatever it might be for you. How did you get this woman to, to share with you, own up to her mistakes? Because you're like, there's some... I mean, she kind of admits what, what she did. Huh. Her mom. I mean, that that was really the, the bonus of having a, a sober sidekick for this whole thing because her mom would call. We were like her mom's like therapist almost. Like her mom would call me or John and be like, oh, my God, Stacy overdosed again. I had to go pick her up in the middle of the night. Oh, my God, she missed her f- children and family appointment to go visit her son. And I, So her mom was like narking her out and – we thought Stacy would be mad about that. And then she was kind of like, oh, I guess my mom told you. You know, she was kind of like, she wasn't really trying to hide, but I don't think she would have been forthcoming, you know, if her mom hadn't. But then she like owned up. Oh, I she mean. totally owned up. Yeah. And I, I respect the heck out of her for that because she did. She she wasn't being cagey about it. She's not particularly sympathetic, but she's also not unsympathetic. At times, she's just sort of pathetic. Um, you know, I mean, like, how did you feel about her as a... I mean, was it hard? Like, how did you come to feel about her as a person and then you trying to convey her as a character? Yeah, I I wanted her to be sympathetic, you know, but I also felt like a lot of people or readers would just dismiss an opioid addict, you know, like they're not worth it. So I I tried to spin it so that the mom's perspective was very uh, in the forefront of it because I think anybody can relate to being worried as a, a parent for your kid going through this. That's a lot more universal than the view of an addict yeah. you know what I mean can you I, I was going to get you to read that section where Frankie dies um, because it's a really and you weren't there right this was actually or I think um, John filmed it John okay uh, so the photographer is there and he's filming it and I think I marked it if you um, keep going and uh, yeah that's it uh, so this is the scene so the the mother pleads with the judge to let the daughter go see her cousin, right before he dies, right? Um, so you, this is actually all coming from watching it on video? And John's notes. And John's notes. I was in Costa Rica when this happened. I was in a plane flying to Costa Rica for another story when this happened. And John was like, holy cow, can you come back to the hospital? And I'm like, no, I'm on the plane. So <laughs> okay. sorry, he was very, very, very helpful in his reporting and filming and pushed through to get this access. Okay, so read that because that's, that's a pretty powerful part of the story. On February 25th, she was brought back into drug court. Her mom stood beside her. Stacy was going to get another chance at rehab. The director of a halfway house had agreed to take her into his six-month program. But first, Stacy's mom had a request for the judge. It was about Stacy's cousin, Frankie. Stacy had been living with him, using with him every night before she'd gone to jail. 
Two days ago, Frankie's brother had found him snoring on the floor. Puncture marks dotted his thick forearms. On the table nearby stood vials of painkillers, diludins and roxycodones. Frankie's brother tried to wake him. No response. He threw water on him. Nothing. When the storing stopped, Frankie's brother dialed 911. Now Frankie was on life support. Stacy's mom, Sherry, had visited him in the hospital. He looks terrible, she said in court. His liver's shot. He had a heart attack at 32. He's bleeding bags and bags of blood. Frankie Herrera had been like Stacy's big brother. He taught her to swim and ride a bike and play Nintendo. Sherry asked the judge to let Stacy go to the hospital so she could watch him die. Please, I feel my daughter needs to witness this, Sherry said. Stacy, still in jail scrubs, began to sob. Deanna Farnell had that day off. Her husband, Crockett Farnell, a retired judge, was presiding over courtroom 10. He agreed to let Stacy out of jail. She could check into the halfway house later. He told the women in drug court, every one of you should see this. Stacy and her mom sped to Northside Hospital. When they arrived, Stacy heard her aunt wailing in Frankie's room. Stacy gagged at the smells of blood and bowels and death. Above Frankie, a breathing machine puffed. Lights flashed. A monitor beeped. Tubes trailed out of his nose from beneath his arms between his legs. His eyes were open, rolled back in his head. Stacy reached out to stroke his forehead. His skin was hot and slick with sweat. I love you, Frankie's mom kept moaning. I'll see you on the other side. Stacy stood at the head of the bed, crying over her cousin, until the beeping of the monitor melted into one long, low tone. Afterward, in the hospital hallway, Stacy's mom held her close. Don't ever do this to me, Sherry cried. You hear me? This time you have to get better. They collapsed to the floor, rocking in each other's arms. Wow. That was my favorite picture from it, too. He's an amazing picture of them outside the yeah. hospital room. So you talk about, so the mom is obviously an integral character. And then you also made Ray, who was the guy at the halfway house, and you made her daughter kind of secondary important characters. Why did you, did you pick them? Uh, obviously because they, they're they meaningful, but I don't know if you dispensed with other characters, you know, why you let them sort of come into play in this story. It was going to be about Stacy as the main character first, and we kind of switched the focus to the mom as she became um, more and more affected by all this and more and more worried. Like, Stacy was able to go get high and put it out of her mind, but her mom, it was constant a constant worry. And she also had this crazy two-year-old at home that she was her whole life had been derailed by. Um, the Ray guy, the guy who ran the halfway house, he didn't become a character until pretty far into the reporting. Um, and he was this really interesting, like, former heroin addict, former homeless guy who'd, like, started this series of halfway houses. And he looked like a creeper. You know, he looked like like a very nefarious guy who was going to prey on these young women. But he had a giant heart for them. And he kept giving Stacy another chance. Um, he kicked a lot of people out of the program during the months we were following it. But... He seemed to have a soft spot for Stacy and feel like she would be able to get past all these hurdles she kept throwing up for herself. You know, Lane did not describe him in the story as a creeper, though. So just you just no, but he John and I talked about that too. Like we backgrounded him a lot. We talked to yeah. a lot of people about him because we didn't want him to be yeah, a heroic right. character if he was a a bad guy too. You know, um, and the judge was very fond of him. The judge vouched for him up one sound down the other. So we felt like that was a good, mm-hmm. a good in with him and the daughter was a sort of a pivotal turning point it seemed like she kind of starts 
interacting again with her mom and there's oh, the Stacey's hope. daughter. Yeah, yeah, Stacey's yeah. Daughter. She she kind of gave Stacy the, the. I mean, I think if if Jade hadn't been there, Stacy probably wouldn't have made it. Like she was really holding her mom's feet to the fire about really, mom. You know, actually, Jade was the one that came up with the idea for "If I Die Young," because she loved that song, um, the country song from the band Perry. From the band Perry, and then and she was singing it with her mom, and then she, we were sitting around a campfire, and she was like, "Don't let that be you, mommy." And John and I were both like, oh, we have a title. <laughs> we have a headline now. Okay. If you have a question for Lane about this uh, series, and if you haven't read it, I really recommend that you get in there and read it. Uh, but if you have a question, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.